Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Now, this is your first Sunday at Candeo, or you're just back with us after a while. This is a great Sunday uh, to be here because we are starting our series that we're going to be going through, uh, really through Easter, and we've entitled this series, Encountering Jesus. And what we're going to look at for the next several months is we're going to look at a bunch of different encounters that Jesus has with a, with a bunch of different kinds of people, particularly through the gospel of Mark. And the reason we're going to look at these different vignettes of these encounters with Jesus is because regardless of whether you follow Jesus or you reject Jesus, you need to know who you're following and who you're rejecting. Like you need to know exactly who it is, Right. And part of the reason why we're going to get a good glimpse of who, of who the real Jesus is through these encounters is it's because as Jesus interacts with all these different kinds of people, it's very similar to the way that you can, you can learn a lot about someone by the way they interact with other people and with different kinds of people. This is why it's so great that if you're good friends with someone, it's actually great to hang out with them in groups because there are aspects of other people's personalities that bring out aspects of your friend's personality that you can't bring out. That's why it can be so fun to hang out in those settings, right? It's because that person's able to draw things out of your friend that you just, you just don't naturally draw out. And what we're going to see as Jesus encounters all these different kinds of people is that these encounters are going to show us different facets of who Jesus is. Now, there are many for whom their understanding, perhaps for you, your understanding of who Jesus is, is really based more on either what you've heard of him or what you would like him to be. Maybe you've heard other people talk about Jesus, and so everything you know about Jesus is kind of secondhand, or everything you think you know about Jesus is based on, well, the kind of Jesus that I would worship would be like this. But if Jesus is really just a projection of your own thoughts, and it's just a projection of your own desires, then you really aren't following Jesus at all. You're actually following yourself. And this morning, what we're going to look at in the book of Mark is the first time that we actually hear Jesus speak up. It's the first time that Jesus's voice comes through in the gospel. And immediately what we see is Jesus is calling people to follow him. Another, another word that you will often use to reference following Jesus is discipleship. You hear that a lot in church. You may have heard of the disciples. Really, what, what is a disciple? It's simply a follower of Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling people to follow him. He's calling people to discipleship. And what we're going to see this morning in our short passage are four aspects of the call of discipleship that Jesus has for those who are going to follow him. And those, those four things are that discipleship is different, the sh- discipleship is drastic, discipleship is progressive, and discipleship is communal. It's different, it's drastic, it's progressive, and it's communal. So first, it's different. Now, the first thing we see Jesus talking about here in the book of Mark is he's talking about the gospel. Now we hear this word gospel a lot. You see it all throughout the New Testament. The gospel, maybe for you, when you think of gospel, in fact, for most of us, when we hear the word gospel, we, be, we immediately think of religion. 
We think of religious people, right? Well, in the ancient world, the word gospel was not exclusively a religious word. The word gospel simply was a word used in reference to any kind of good news that would dramatically impact your life. This is why if, if you read historical accounts, you'll actually see things like the gospel of Caesar Augustus. What was this? Was this Caesar trying to, you know, you know, wiggle his way into the New Testament. No, not at all. Simply what it was, was it was, you know, it was often kings going out and they would have military conquests and they would come home. And if they, if they came home victorious, they would write a gospel. They would write good news that would then be sent out to all the people in the kingdom to help them understand what the implications of this victory were going to actually be on the kingdom and in their life. That's why you see the gospel of Caesar Augustus, Right. The word gospel was simply good news. We, we kind of have something similar today, right? We have regular news and we have breaking news, right? Where the program you're watching shuts down and we go to breaking news. The go gospel news in the ancient world was their breaking news. Any good news that had an impact on your everyday life in real deep and meaningful ways. You, you could say that the way that, the way that they lived their life was largely influenced by the good news that they had received. Now, before we go, well, that was like that then, but our, our world's so much different. We don't have news like that. Well, if you think about it though, we're, we're very similar. We don't have people walking through the streets per se with scrolls and horses, right? You know, proclaiming the good news of the president, right? But we have societal good news that is proclaimed all the time. Perhaps by this point in the day, you've, you've heard several iterations of this. I'll give you some examples. Today, instead of what's proclaimed being the good news of God, which is what Jesus is proclaiming here, what we get is the supposed good news of self-expression. And what that good news says is that you are your emotions and therefore the good life is found if you express your authentic identity in front of others, those people then affirm that identity and you are accepted into some broader community. That's where the good life is found. You just live your truth, perform that truth in front of others, and be accepted and admired. That's where the good life is found. It's, it's the gospel of self-expression. You could have the gospel of romanticism, where it says the good life is found in romantic relationships. So orient your life around pursuing those relationships, maintaining those relationships, preserving those relationships. Because if you don't have romantic relationships, you cannot have a good life. That is the gospel of romanticism. You could have the gospel of progressivism, which basically says that everything is progressing forward and everything is getting better. And we have not yet, we have not yet reached the good life, but it's just around the corner so long as we enact the right policies and, and vote in the right people. It's the gospel of progressivism. I could go on. There, there, there's many different gospels, many different supposed good news being proclaimed in our society today. But we are all looking for a kind of good news that we can orient our life around. 
in hopes of finding the good life. But what following Jesus is, is it's receiving a totally different good news than the world preaches. It's receiving a totally different gospel than what you will hear every day. And what the good news that Jesus is proclaiming is here in verse 15. Look at what he says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. What is the kingdom of God? We've referenced this multiple times. The kingdom of God is not particularly a place. You couldn't look on a map and go, well, there is the kingdom of God. It's not geographical. What the kingdom of God means is it's the good rule and reign of God in the lives of people. The kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is a person and the kingdom of God is an authority within people. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God has come near. You see, this is not just good news from God. We often think of God, we think, well, God, God is in heaven and heaven is a long ways away, right? But no, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the good news, the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming is not in a galaxy far, far away. Because good news that exists in an unreachable place is not good news, like, if, if we knew that there was a cure for cancer, but it was on Jupiter, not good news, right? Big ball of gas that we, can nev- that we cannot land on. So I don't care how much of the cure for cancer is on that thing, we're never getting it. Still not good news. But what we have in Jesus Christ is that the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. And it's a good news, unlike any other news that this world has to offer. It's the good news that by faith in Jesus Christ, you can actually be free from sin and you can be free from self-righteousness. It's the good news that in, by faith in Jesus Christ, you can be free from the crushing weight of self-reliance and the crushing weight of self-absorption. That you can actually be free from worshiping yourself. You see, while the gospels of the world say that the good life is very far away and therefore you must, you must scratch and claw, you must, you must strive to attain the good life, the good news of the gospel of God is that the good kingly authority of God has come near in Jesus Christ. And it, and it is actually available to you by no merit of your own. You see, looking for... A good, looking for good life, looking for abundant life, apart from the designer of life, is like trying to use something while disregarding the intention of the designer. This is why using a hairdryer in the shower is not a good idea. It was not designed to do that. This is why eating tomato soup out of a strainer is not a good idea. You can try it, it'll be a bit messy. Because it wasn't designed to do that, right? This is why trying to iron your clothes while you're wearing your clothes is not a good idea. It wasn't designed to work that way. But what Jesus is doing, what Jesus isn't doing, because he says the, 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 the kingdom of God is near, that's good news, not in, a, not in a galaxy far, far away, but it's right here. You don't have to scratch and claw and strive to get it, but it has come near to you. And then he says, repent and believe the good news. 
And what he isn't doing when he says, repent and believe the good news, is, he, is Jesus is not becoming a street preacher evangelist that you, might, that you might think of in your mind when you hear repent and believe the good news. He's not standing on a milk crate with a bullhorn at the farmer's market, angrily yelling at people condemning them to hell. That's not what he's saying when he's saying repent and believe the good news. No, what he's doing is he's saying repent, which literally means to turn away from. He's saying repent turn away from the bad news of life apart from God, turn away from the bad news, and turn to the good news of the God that has come near. That's what it means. And there are some of you who have yet to turn from your old way of thinking, and you have yet to turn from your old way of living. You've been trying for years and years, perhaps decades, to try to find the good life in everything apart from God. But friends, pursuing the good life apart from God will always either disappoint you or leave you looking for more. But when you look to Christ... And you say, I'm done trying to create myself. I'm done trying to save myself. I'm done trying to fulfill myself. Jesus, you are God and I am not. I relinquish control. That's what it means to repent and believe the good news. The good news of the kingdom of God, the good kingly authority of God that can come into your life as a result of faith. Now, following Jesus does not mean that you'll have an easy life. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you have a good life. You see, we, we so often confuse, we, we so often conflate a good life and an easy life. But when you repent and believe the good news, what you receive in the good kingly authority of God is a peace, a stability, a joy, and a rest, even in the midst of tragedy and trials that you would never be able to find in any other supposed good news that the world tries to offer you. So discipleship is different because it's based on a different kind of news. Number two, discipleship is drastic. Look at verse 16. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Now, first, they were fishermen. These are just regular guys. We live in Iowa. Fishing isn't exactly, I don't imagine, a lucrative profession. I don't know where you're fishing, right? This so totally, this was a normal job, normal guys, normal job, wasn't a great job, wasn't a terrible job. It was just a job, normal people. And Jesus comes alongside here in verse 17. And when he calls them to follow him, Jesus is doing something in that moment that is radically countercultural. Why? It's because Jesus, if you, read through the, if you read through the gospels, what you see is Jesus is often referred to as a teacher. And what was a teacher? A teacher was a rabbi a religious leader, a rabbi. And how did rabbis in the ancient world get their disciples? The way that, a, the way that you became a disciple of a rabbi if you were in the ancient world was, was not that a rabbi would come and pursue you, but instead you would, you would pursue them. In other words, you would, need to, you would need to assemble your religious resume, take it to that rabbi, and prove that you were good enough to be their disciple. And you, you had to apply. Being a disciple in the ancient world of any rabbi was based on an application process. 
You go to the rabbi, present to them your, your qualifications, your credentials, you would look over it. And if you were good enough, if you were smart enough, if you clearly had what it, take, what it took to be their student, then maybe that rabbi would allow you to be their disciple. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus does not wait for these regular, ordinary fishermen to apply to be his disciple. No, instead, Jesus takes the initiative. They weren't even, they weren't even looking for a rabbi. They weren't even looking to, to change their occupation. They weren't looking to do anything different. And Jesus doesn't ask for an application. He doesn't look over their credentials. He doesn't consider their qualifications. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. But instead, Jesus initiates the whole thing. You see, here's the thing. Jesus is neither impressed by your resume or deterred by your resume because he actually doesn't ever ask for it. But make no mistake, though there is nothing you bring to the table to make you worthy of being his disciple, you don't bring anything to the table. Some of you think you're a big deal and therefore God should love you. You don't bring anything to the table. Some of you think you're not good enough. You're too unclean, you're too messed up, you've done too many things, why would God ever want me? You don't bring anything to the table. He's not impressed by nor deterred by your resume. But even though you don't bring anything to the table to be his disciple, the result of being his disciple must be drastic. Because look at what immediately happens when both Simon and Andrew in verses 16 to 18 and James and John in verse, verses 19 and 20, look at, look at what immediately happens when Jesus comes along, initiates the relationship and calls them to follow him. For Simon and Andrew... Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then James and John in verse 20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So Jesus calls these guys to follow him. And what do they do? They leave their jobs and they leave their families. They immediately drop them. And what we see from this radical shift in allegiances with these early disciples is that the call of repentance and belief, if you are going to turn from the bad news of the worldly gospels and turn to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the call of discipleship cannot be applied then to certain areas of your life and not others. This isn't to say that their nets were bad, that their jobs were bad, that their families were bad, anything like that. But it is to say that if they were going to truly embrace being Jesus's disciple, and if we are going to embrace ever being Jesus's disciple, then even the good things in our life that would become an obstacle to following Christ will need to be left behind. And the call of discipleship today is no less dramatic you see, there are many, perhaps some of you, that think following Jesus, uh, perhaps you think that you can follow Jesus simply by adding him onto your life. Like Jesus is a, um, is a spiritual, psychological, emotional accessory. He's an add-on. Perhaps some of you think of Jesus like a side of fries. What do I mean? So... You go to a restaurant. Uh, this, I'm, not a, I'm not a big potato person. It's fine. 
but I don't know, starches, whatever. I would honestly rather just have another cheeseburger. That would be my side. I'd have a cheeseburger with a side of cheeseburger. So, uh, so I go to a restaurant, they go, do, do you want fries with that? Usually what I say is, no thanks. I want the burger, I don't want the fries. No thanks. Some of you guys see Jesus like a side of fries. Like, I'll take, I'll take the salvation, but all this other stuff, no thanks. Jesus, I'm not really that hungry. I want, I want saved from hell. Would, would, you, would you like obedience with that? Ah, no. Would you like purity with that? Would you like generosity with that? Would you like, like self-sacrificial living? Would you like considering others as greater than yourself with that? Mm. I'll just take the salvation. But Jesus didn't come to earth to become one of many other aspects of your life. He came to be your life. Now, when I say that in 2024, that sounds radical. That sounds drastic. It's, it sounds like if you're actually going to have Jesus be the orienting center of your life, you have to be fanatical. And we have a really hard time with religious fanatics, don't we? You see, I, 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 think, a, I think a watershed moment in our culture, and I don't even know that we recognized it, was that before 9-11, if you were really serious about your faith, you were considered weird. I think something happened after 9-11 in America that if you're really serious about your faith, regardless of what that faith is, you're, not no, you're no longer seen as weird. You're seen as dangerous. And so what we've done, in order to not be seen really as either weird or dangerous, is we've tried to um, figure out how to not become so fanatical. But what you can't do is you can't go to the other end of the spectrum and become a hypocrite, because nobody likes hypocrites, right? To just say they believe one thing, but it has no bearing on their life. And so instead what we've done, in order to not be a fanatic, we've, we've really gone, you know what? I'm just gonna not be fanatical about Jesus. I'm just gonna take him in moderation. It's the moderate approach. It's enough, it's enough for it to be you know, relatively real-ish, but not so much that you're so weird or you make anyone else uncomfortable or, or it has any real deep meaningful implications in your life or in your relationships. It's the moderate approach. But the problem is, is that the moderate approach to following Jesus doesn't at all square with what these fishermen do here. And it certainly doesn't square with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, where he says this. He says, if anyone, notice, he doesn't say, if you want to be a pastor, then this is what's required of you. Or if you want to be, you know, really religious, then this is, no, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying that if you love your mom, you can't be a Christian? You're like, I love my mom. He's saying I have to hate my mom. No, what Jesus is talking about here is not a categorical hatred. What Jesus is talking about here is a comparative hatred. Here's what I mean. 
What Jesus is saying is that if you're going to be my disciple, then your love for me, your commitment to me, and your allegiance to me should be so intense that even the love that you have for those who are closest to you looks like hatred in comparison to the intensity of your love for me. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying categorically hate your mom and dad, your brothers and sisters. What he's saying is compared to your love and allegiance and devotion to him, your love for everything else pales in comparison. You see, Jesus is calling for unconditional discipleship or no discipleship at all. And following Jesus cannot be a la carte. No, following Jesus is a complete meal. No additions, no substitutions, please. It's a complete meal. This is not Burger King. You cannot have it your way. If you're gonna be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you either have it his way or you don't have it. So, follow, so discipleship is different. Discipleship is drastic. Number three, discipleship is progressive. Now this is easy to miss, particularly because of the translation we use here at Candeo. But in verse 17, when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people, perhaps a better translation of that verse, I, I, not perhaps, a better translation of that verse is follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, what does that mean? That means that when Jesus called his disciples, he did not call them as finished products. But instead, when he called them as his disciples, he said, I am going to turn you into someone you aren't currently. I'm going to make you become this kind of person who does these kinds of things. You see, there's a... There's a common phrase, you've probably heard it, and it's half right. And the phrase is, Jesus loves me just the way I am. And that's half right. Because when Jesus encounters you, when you encounter Jesus, he does love you exactly the way you are. But here's the thing, Jesus loves you enough to not leave you as you are. Jesus does love you. When you first encounter Christ, he loves you the way you are. But he loves you so much that he is so committed to not leaving you as you are. Now, while... Discipleship is a whole life drastic commitment. It's also simultaneously the case that it is often a slow, gradual progression of God's grace working in your life to conform you into the person that you aren't yet. You see, it isn't obvious at all that when the disciples dropped their nets, left their families and followed Jesus, that they actually knew what they were signing up for. In fact, they, you could make the argument they had no idea what they were signing up for. All they knew is that this rabbi was not requiring an application process and called them to follow him. And so they were like, all right, let's go. But they had no clue what they were signing up for. Because time and time again, as you read through the gospel accounts, these disciples are constantly confused. They're constantly scared out of their minds and they're constantly making the wrong assumptions. Jesus is constantly over and over and over having to help them see how they don't understand what's going on. They had no idea what they were signing up for and yet Jesus does not kick them to the curb. But instead he clearly, strongly, and lovingly corrects them and guides them to help them see who he really is and who they really are. Perhaps for you, you get frustrated 
with how mundane your walk with Jesus seems. And I, I imagine part of that frustration is because for many of us, when we, when we came to know Christ, we knew who we were and now who we are. And there's this excitement and there's this passion. We, we know almost nothing about the Bible or about God or anything like that. All we know is what, what, what Jesus has done. That's what Andrew talked about last week. All I know is I once was blind, but, not, but now I see. That's all I know. That's pretty exciting. And we're excited and start off. And then over time, as we continue to follow Jesus, it seems for some unknown reason, that zeal just kind of slowly but surely comes down. And we begin to be dissatisfied with the seeming monotony of following Jesus because it doesn't look that spectacular most of the time. If that's you, I'll say two things. One, that, that, that could be the result of one of two things. There's probably more than two, but at least one of two. The first is it's possible that complacency and apathy really are contributing factors to your sense of the mundane monotony of following Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps for you, you've been living your life just trying to be a moderate Christian. And so for you, the challenge this morning is truly to consider what aspects of my life have I not yet surrendered to Christ? Where, where are the no-fly zones that I have established where the good rule and reign of Christ is basically off-limits in these areas? That could be, be, be contributing factors to the mundane feeling of your faith. It's possible. Now, perhaps for some of you, my guess is for a lot of you actually, is that you need to be reminded that discipleship is less like setting off fireworks and it's more like growing oak trees. Fireworks are, are really fun. They're loud, they're dramatic, they're visible, but they're over as quickly as they began. And perhaps for you, that feeling of monotony, that feeling of your faith being mundane, perhaps it's because you expected the Christian life to be this never-ending emotional high. You, you expected the, uh, the roller coaster to only ever be plummeting towards the earth, like indefinitely. But following Jesus isn't like that. But instead, it's the faithfulness of slowly but, sh but surely following Christ in every area of your life in the little ways. The little ways. The indiscern seemingly indiscernible ways. The little steps of faithfulness to Christ. And you will see slowly but surely over time his constant faithfulness to you as you experience the slow but lasting growth of faith that isn't here for a moment and gone tomorrow, but is instead like a massive oak tree. Like a massive oak tree that stands strong in the storms and provides refresh, refreshing shade for the weary. My guess is, for those of you with little kids, if you woke up tomorrow and they were six and a half feet tall, you would not be impressed. You would be concerned. Right? Because that'd be weird. One, they'd be really clumsy. Like imagine your three-year-old as a six and a half foot tall person, right? They would break everything. It'd be a problem. You actually don't want that, 
right? And here, this is part of why, like us parents, you never actually see your, your kids grow. You know they grow, obviously. But like over time, you just, you're kind of around them so much that it's only when you see someone that hasn't seen them for a while that they're like, oh my gosh, they've grown so much. And you're like, yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't, I don't know. They, they just kind of woke up that way. You know, that's just normal for me, right? Why? It's because it's so slow, that you can almost not see it. But just because you almost can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And this is why we need people around us to actually be able to point out the areas in our lives in which God is actually conforming us into his image because it's so difficult for us to see it on our own. And this is exactly why, number four, discipleship is communal. Don't miss that Though Jesus calls his disciples as individuals, right? Simon, Andrew, James, John, individual guys, individual names. They have their own life. They are their own people. He calls them as individuals, but immediately after Jesus calls them as, as, to his, as his disciples, they are incorporated into a community of other disciples, this is true of Jesus' disciples then. This is true of the church in general now. You see, 99% of the time when you see Christians referenced in Scripture, they are not referenced as individuals, but as a group. And it's so easy for us. Can I, can I just give you a little bit of a warning that as you are reading through the New Testament, it's not all the time, but many times when we see the word you, we often think we often think when the Bible says you, it means me. Me, by myself, at my table, with my coffee, me, Jake. What it often means is y'all. Many of the New Testament writers were from the South. They mean, yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> you know, like, they, they, they're saying you, but they're saying y'all. They're addressing this to y'all, do these things together. Be these people together. Express this life together. That's why there are so many different pictures used to describe Christians. And many of those pictures in Scripture are a people, a nation, a priesthood, a body, a family. What do all of these pictures of the Christian life have in common in Scripture? Is that they are all groups, they are communal. You see, Jesus' own disciples couldn't follow Jesus without being with one another. What in the world makes you think that you can follow Jesus without needing someone else? This is the very reason that Paul, when he is addressing the Corinthians about their misuse of the Lord's Supper, we're, we're going we're gonna, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. But notice when Paul addresses and corrects the Corinthians about their misuse of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, here's what he says. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, what in the world is he talking about? What does it mean to recognize the body? What he's talking about is to, is to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper with no consideration about the fellow Christians who are around you. You see, what so often can happen 
And it's not wrong to assess our own life, to assess our, you know, to assess ourselves. Am I living in a way that is honorable to Christ? All those kinds of things. That's not necessarily wrong. But when we take the Lord's Supper together, what the call for us to do is not to close our eyes, bow our heads, and go into our own little introverted self, you know, self-reflective box where we only consider ourselves. No, the call is to actually open our eyes, look around, and ask ourselves, are there any ways that I am living that does not consider the body of Christ? Are there any ways that I am disunified with a fellow brother or sister? Are there any ways that I have sinned against someone else or that they have sinned against me and I am harboring bitterness and failing to forgive them? Well, the Lord says, what Paul says in, in not taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner means to not care at all about the people you're taking the Lord's Supper with. For there to be existing strife and bitterness within the very body that the elements of the Lord's Supper are meant to portray. So as we take the Lord's Supper together this morning, the call for us is to ask ourselves, is there anyone within our community of faith here now, it doesn't mean you have to know everyone's name. You likely don't know everyone in this room. But is there anyone that you know of within this community of faith, within this body that you have sinned against? Is there anyone that you're failing to forgive? Is there anyone that you're disunified with? If so, consider the body and be united. Because discipleship is communal. You cannot have God as Father and not have your fellow Christians as brother and sister. It would be like if my son came up to me. He's never done this, thankfully, but it, it would be like if he came up to me and said, Dad, I love you, but I hate my sister. Now, perhaps your kids have said that, and I'm sure he's felt that at times, right? But for me, that would not be okay because the, because the sister he is hating is my daughter, And so for any extended length of time, my son cannot indefinitely hate my sister and yet expect for us to have an untarnished relationship as a result of that hate. We as Christians need each other. And as we receive the Lord's Supper, we must consider one another. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.